0: Good evening and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, we're here to receive your questions as we're live here. Any question that you have, an honest question, as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers. So it could be maybe a verse or passage of scripture that has confused you, maybe something you're going through in your life, maybe world events. Uh, You'd like a biblical perspective. Again, any honest question, we're happy to try and find the answers for you in the Word today. So we're very glad that you're joining us. My name's Dave Robson. I'll be your host and fielding those questions as they come on in with us today in the studio, as is often the case, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, sir? Good.
1: And uh, given Peter Martin and I's recent adventures in addressing Roman Catholicism, found out something rather unfortunate. Oh yeah? What is that? That stars have mass.
0: Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> it's a Catholic joke. I like it. Very good. Moving swiftly on. We also have with us Pastor Peter Martin. How are you doing today?
2: Doing okay. It's probably, yeah, uh, next week I'm not going to be here. So No? Uh, yeah.
0: Baby time? Yep. It's baby time. Wow. So next
2: week Emma's given. Going into labor. Wow, <laughs> one way or another. One Whether way she or another, the baby's coming out. <laughs> I, I
0: predict it. I call it. Wow, yes, never so. wrong. So. You have a, a daughter. How old? How old is your daughter now? Two, two, two? something. And you all have right. a son, something. Really no, no. You lose track, and you have a son on the way. Yeah, little boy. Next week, apparently. Wow. Next week. Very. How exciting! Yeah, she's being induced, so we actually do have a date. You have a date. <laughs> That's my <Yeah>. point. Wow, <laughs> well, we'll all be praying for that. Great. Well, again, thank you for for joining us. We're glad you're. Out there, there are several ways you can join us on the show. If you're hearing us and seeing us, then you've obviously already found a way. If you're listening on Reach Radio, you're listening to our previous uh, broadcast pre recorded. Uh, but on our other platforms, we are live and in the flesh. Uh, so you can join us at Calvary Christian uh, Follow the Watch Live tab there. And on Facebook, we're also at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have a app that you can download on your mobile device, be that a cell phone or your iPad, etc. And watch us there as well. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship in your app store. I'm kind of getting worse at it, which is strange. <laughs> You're regressing. <No>, he's, <laughs> self,
1: he's self-conscious because I mentioned in a joke to his son that when he says the last broadcast, it's right. just the final broadcast. You're listening to the last broadcast. That's right. but then I said you could say previous and there'd be no yeah. confusion But right. uh, I and I did, I said
0: previous and I looked at Sean gloatingly and then I lost my train of thought, that's exactly what happened I think
2: you just need a cue card
0: that's right. <laughs> that's, a, <yeah. laughs> that's right, just keep on going yeah, pride comes before the fall or something like that, where was I oh, on YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope that is the name of the channel there on YouTube um, A Reason for Hope and you can send us your questions by email as well if you listen on the radio you'll want to to do that and we'll get to your questions on the next show our, e- our email address is questions hope at gmail.com that's questions for hope or spelled out with letters at gmail.com you can follow our senior pastor here at calvary christian fellowship scott richards on twitter at scott r4h that's scott letter r number four letter h and he posts uh, highlights on the show and snarky snippets and little encouragements and uh, uh world events from biblical pers- perspectives and news items and all kinds of good stuff. So you can follow him on Twitter there. And again, please send your questions in as we go along on those live chat uh, functions, the chat boxes, and I will be fielding those as they come in. The show is guided by your questions. And so we're very glad that you send those questions in. But firstly and foremostly, well, why don't we pray? Who would like to pray? I'll just, I'll look for volunteers. Anyone? i are talking to God.
1: All right. Do that. Dad, thank you for the chance of being in your word here today. We know this is not something we want to take for granted. Quit Peter and I to not only speak your word in truth, but also with your heart and love. We have so many things going on in our lives, but we're thankful that we have the chance to not only meet with you here, but also with your people. I pray that that common goal would ultimately be to give us more things to be thankful for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen.
0: Amen. So it's Tuesday today, and you guys usually do an Apologetic Tuesday. Um, so what's on your heart to well to discuss today? Uh,
1: as far as the time of this recording is concerned, it is November 8th of 2022, and in the United States that would be the time of our midterm elections. Uh, obviously a lot of hot water for people, not only on either side of the political spectrum, but those on the side of Christianity because when it comes to those who affirm a relationship with Jesus Christ, this phrase is oftentimes brought up. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a libertarian. I'm a monarchist. I serve a great king. And this strikes some people as a point of controversy in some areas when it comes time to vote, because the, on one hand, uh, position for Christians is, since I'm not loyal to ultimately this form of government. Is my participation in it insincere or even uh, going counter to what God's purposes would be for it anyway? And then on the exact opposite end, people say, if I don't vote, then the plans of God are going to be thwarted. And on it goes. We obviously would consider both an error as far as perspectives are concerned and have dealt with this fairly recently. But uh, Peter, you have the chance of being here with us. Uh, what is the Christian perspective towards voting, towards politics in general, and of course, uh, hopefully, with some scripture to support?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think this is, as you said, Sean, a question that's been on a lot of Christians' minds. And when you look through the history of the church, the interesting thing is, is we're living in a very unique time in church history. So predominantly what you saw throughout church history is that Christians were actually very active politically, sometimes to our detriment. But uh, Christians were always very politically active, and there there was a reason for that that we'll get into in a second. But the first one comes from, can we, from a scriptural perspective, get a view, good view on government? What's its purpose? What's its function? What is it there to do? So what we see is that God has government, not because it's an ideal, but because it's a necessary thing for mankind. So when God sets up his own nation in the book of Judges. Well, judges when uh, Israel finally gets set up. He actually doesn't have a governmental stricture. Uh, He has essentially varieties of priests that functioned as local judges, but he didn't have a centralized local government. It would have been more like to the confederacy, like a confederacy, Uh, just various nation states that were unified under one common banner, but they had their own rules. They had their own perspectives and they had their own loyalties. That was the idea of the Book of Judges. And if you've ever read through the Book of Judges, it doesn't go too well. So we get this perspective that government is necessary to rein in the predations of man, that men are not capable of what we would call pure self-governance, that it's just not possible for men in this fallen state to be able to do what is in the best interest of others beyond our natural tribalistic setting. So if you shrink down a group of people to an atomized uh, section like a tribe, they are very cohesive, there's a lot of egalitarianism and it works very well. Once you expand that out beyond your local community and you try to get people to cooperate with one another over large tracts of land from different perspectives, people who have different ideals, different uh, priorities and things like that, it just all kind of falls to pot. So a structured, localized, centralized government is actually incredibly important to man. Now, the problem is, is that some people could then look at that and say, because government is necessary for man, therefore government is the way that mankind is oriented towards the good. That in other words, men cannot become ethical unless the state legislates ethics. That would be in ancient world, they had that idea, Hammurabi's Code, as well as you can make that argument even for Sharia law and Islam today. That there's this idea that we need to legislate everything down to, no joke, how you wipe yourself after you're done going to the bathroom. Otherwise, you'll fall into heresy and you'll go away from God. So why is it that liberty, this concept of liberty, has to be balanced out within Christian communities? And to put it another way, why is it that centralized Christian governance that has existed for centuries never sought to be a totalitarian state? that legislates morality in a to- in a total way, like Sharia law? Well, the answer to that question is that Christians realized that they had to balance what we would call liberty with responsibility because the only way to be actually virtuous is if you have a choice. That's the whole point of the book of Genesis, right? In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates man and he puts the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the center of it, the idea was that you can only have life and if you have liberty, you can only have life in a loving relationship with God if you have some sort of a liberty, if it's freely chosen. If that choice is removed from you, you might be doing the right thing, but you're not doing it for the right reason. You're being coerced into it, you're not being able to choose it. So liberty is necessary for genuine virtue to flourish. That's why Christians at their best moments, right, sometimes they kind of miss this, at their best moments they try to restrain the government from controlling people's behavior to, putting in constraints necessary to allow virtuous behavior to flourish. So good example of this would be in the 1960s when Martin Luther King was arguing for the civil rights legislation. A lot of Christians came against him and they said, well, you know, you cannot legislate morality. You cannot you cannot change hearts with politics. And he said, well, that that's not the point of politics, right? The point of politics is not to change the heart of the sinner. It is to restrain the sinner's heart, right? So in other words, I... I kind of like the idea that the government will prosecute people who would try to lynch me. I don't expect those people to be converted to Christianity as a result of that legislation, but in order for me and my family to be able to flourish and to be able to spread our ideals and convert other people to our way of thinking, there has to be constraints against heartless people that would prevent me from doing that. There has to be a preservation of, as our founders put it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The government needs to have a role and preserving those things for its citizenry. Now, there's many other topics I could get into when it comes to politics, but what I'm trying to do in this time is to show people that, as Sean said, there are some people who really do believe that because we serve God, our theology and our politics have nothing to do with one another. And that's just not true. Uh, Politics, it comes from a Greek word of polis, which just means the state, right? It means your local community, in other words. So to say that you're not political means that you're not integrated with other people. Uh, that's not, unless you're a hermit, lives in a cave, that's just not true. You have to live in a community and a society with others, and it does behoove you to try to utilize the government that God has placed in order to restrain the actions of heartless people in order to preserve a life that is fruitful and enables you to live it in a flourishing way unto God. So that does mean enacting with the governmental structures. now. Uh, When it comes to the practicality of this, there are moral concerns politically, and then there are what we would call wisdom concerns politically. Moral concerns are the ones that we can't fluctuate on as Christians, right? Now, uh, what that means is that the ethics that undergird our society, we can't fluctuate on them. We can't actually say that, no, it's okay to do this, or it's okay to do that. That's just my opinion. We have to be very stern about it. So, for instance, the preservation of life. Can a Christian politically say, well, I don't believe the government should ever restrain someone from, say, taking slaves, um, violent violating someone else's sovereignty, uh, or killing them? Well, no, that would be unchristian, because that's the whole point that the state exists to, again, restrain the activity of those who are evil. We have to have that as an ethical framework. Mankind is made in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, his life is precious, and therefore, it's worthy of protection. That's something that we can't compromise on. From there, you get into issues like pro-life versus pro-choice. Should a Christian be pro-life or should a Christian be pro-choice? And the answer is, well, you should be pro-life because you believe in the inherent human worth that is placed upon someone at the moment of conception, right? That human life is worthy of inherent protection from the state. Therefore, you should want the state to protect human life. Now, Once you get past these very clear ethical issues, then we get into what we call wisdom issues. How do you appropriately apply that without stealing people's ability to choose it, right? So you wanna create enough structures that allows for people to be, again, restrained from causing harm, but not too many structures that people can't choose to do the right thing. And that balancing act is what we call our political system, right? And that takes a lot of wisdom and balancing these things back and forth. And that's where Christians can have a lot of healthy debate. Mm -hmm. I think a big problem that we have in the church today is because Christians are like, I don't wanna talk about my politics, let's just talk about God. They don't have a healthy way of being able to dialogue about their political beliefs, and therefore they're not working them out in a theological setting, they're working them out in a non-theological setting. And uh, once again, as a pastor, I get to see how people communicate with one another under the banner of churchdom on Facebook and places like that. And yeah, these are professing believers and they're not talking in the best ways about their political views. So the idea that like, well, we could just not talk about it in church and then people won't talk about it, that's just not true. People are going to talk about it. And the less we encourage healthy discussion within a theological setting, people are going to discuss things outside of it. So in other words, if I'm gonna talk about politics, I want the lens that I'm looking through to be my spiritual life with God. I don't want it to be a secularized process. And therefore that will help me balance things. So again, there's much more I could get into. If you guys are curious about how these ideas developed, uh, you could look at guys like Peter Abelard, who wrote about natural law. Uh, You could look look at, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but his name was Bartholomew. And he talked about uh, human rights and the development of human, the concept of human rights and the right of government within that. You can even look up uh, the conquest of Charlemagne and how he had to balance that because when Charlemagne started taking over the Saxons and the Jutes, uh, Dave's people essentially, uh, he had to realize like, is it good that I'm taking over pagans and removing all their ability to practice paganism? And you get to see people contradicting him and saying, well, no, we're supposed to make disciples of all men, not slaves of all men. And so he had to back off and realize what's the best way to convert these people as opposed to coercing them into faith in Christ. So these are some interesting ideas that a lot of people I don't think have actually looked into. They just take for granted the way that we do government today and they don't realize why it's important and therefore they might be more likely to allow these things to slip away, not knowing what came before it. Mm -hmm. So um, our political rights are actually very important. They have a long history, they developed for a reason, and therefore Christians ought to be to the extent they can, political, but as you said, Sean, it's not our savior. We serve Jesus. Uh, I I like what our founder said. They said, democracy is the worst system of government, except for all the others, right? That's That's the way we need to look at it. Human beings are a mess. Anytime human beings are gonna run other human beings, they're gonna make a lot of mistakes. There's gonna be a lot of difficulties. There's gonna be pursuits of power. There's gonna be greed. There's gonna be interests that go against other interests. You have to be able to balance these things with the idea that we're not trying to create a utopia here we're trying to create the best possible world that we could live in, that we could flourish in our faith. As Paul puts in First Timothy chapter 2, pray for all men, pray for those who are in leadership, that we, we might be able to lead a quiet and peaceful life unto God, right? That's what we want. We want to live a quiet, peaceful life unto God, and therefore we need to help our government structure so that we can do that. So anything you'd like to add to that or clarify?
1: No. just make sure that we understand that as this political mess is taking place around us, that our ultimate hope isn't found in it, and at the same time, that as we are engaging with others on it, that we don't consider it something virtuous to be neutral about. When it comes to, and uh, this isn't my line, this is from Frank Turek of Cross-Examined, when it comes to our vertical relationship with God, we call that religion. When it comes to our horizontal relationship with our fellow man, that's called politics. What are the two things you don't discuss in polite company? It's religion and politics. Oh, what do you know? The only two things that matter. Don't be afraid to understand these things, but make sure also that you understand them, that you've thought through your own issues and that you're willing to learn if you're corrected or called out in a point of error or a blind spot, which we all have. And also note as well that, uh, uh, what would be the proper way of phrasing this, that uh, appeasement of evil is not seeking peace with all men. Understand that as well. Mm. If you see something happening that is illegal in your legal processes or politicians that are doing something wrong, you as a Christian aren't living at peace with all men by allowing that to happen. We should be a blessing, as my father stated previously, to any nation we are a part of, and allowing evil to flourish isn't that.
0: So, Very good. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you for that. We've got some good questions coming in. I had um. A nice email coming from Cody. Cody, yesterday, uh, it was, uh, asked thank the, you. That what's was,
1: that? wasn't a question, just a thank you for answering the question.
0: Right. I was about to read it <laughs> and share it with you guys. He had a great question yesterday about how to make decisions um, that aren't specifically in the Bible. And today he said, good evening, pastors. Thank you very much for reading and answering my question. You are all appreciated for taking your time uh, to answer Bible questions. Have a great evening. So thank you, Cody. Appreciate your encouragement. It goes out to you guys today. And thanks for being part of the show. We appreciate your questions. Uh, questions here. Question from Witnessing for Jesus. Great name. Uh, they say, ask him for a friend. I love that modern phrase that you can throw in front of things. He says, What's wrong with being gay? Why did God say Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, <laughs> or Eve and Eva? Uh, why he could have things. So what oh, is- he could have. Um, yeah, let's start with the
1: basics. Make sure that we aren't co-opting language. Is it wrong to be happy in, or in an elated state? That's the original meaning of the term gay. But when we're referring to those in a homosexual lifestyle, <laughs> there is obviously a lot of weight behind that, and we need to make sure we define our terms. When someone embraces, and I take the efforts to call it hedonism, because that is what it is, determining what is right or wrong based on the pleasure that it provides, that it feels right to me, that it's not wrong because it feels so right, that's the worldview this is coming from. When we're talking about Adam and Eve, we're talking about something being wrong or something being not wrong. What's ultimately, I think, at the heart of this question is God could have done something So why didn't he? And I think that's going to be far more productive. And then we can get into the secondary issues then. When it comes to God could have done something, understand that there are things that God can't do. There are things like sin. God can't violate his own nature. There are things like absurdities. God can't violate his own nature in the rules that he set up. As far as truth is concerned, God cannot lie, according to the book of Numbers and affirmed in the, uh, I believe, letter to Titus. And on it goes. God can't not be himself, and within himself, he provided us something beautiful, something reflective of his nature, and something that honors him in a specific way, and that's called our sexuality. When we get our greasy little hands on something, and in a rebellious state against God, we will practice it in ways that are other than his nature. And when we can Uh, demand that God conform to our image rather than we conform to God, we've got the whole concept of morality backwards. We're saying that we have better ideas than the one who came up with the concept of an idea. And that, of course, is absurd. So when we're talking to people who don't know Jesus, the question is leveled at us. Why do you not hold to my moral point of view? This feels good to me. Why don't you agree? Or why would you deny me this ultimate good? Whereas at its foundation, we don't agree on what the definition of good is. So we need to first clarify that. The second thing is that when we say something is right or wrong, we're not just saying it conforms to the character and nature of God, but as a side benefit that is for your highest good. That A fellowship with God is the greatest pleasure, even going from their own worldview, than anything else this world would provide. So when we tell people that there is a better way to practice your sexuality than just wherever your brain chemistry tends to push you at the moment, we would say there is a better option. If they don't believe that, then understand, 1 Corinthians 5 notes, God will ultimately bring them to account between them and him. But as far as where we stand, our judgment is limited to and should be applied to those who claim the name of Jesus but live contrary to his nature. If someone is in a homosexual lifestyle, then they shouldn't come to someone who doesn't share their worldview and demand they conform because that's just the same problem they have with us when it's not actually happening. The real reason, and this is again speaking to Christians, that we should offer the gospel before any moral correction takes place is because unless they have a relationship with Jesus, they have no reason to take his standards or his nature seriously as a standard for right and wrong. So when someone says, I'm in a homosexual relationship, I've embraced this hedonist lifestyle, there's a worldview there, and you need to be aware of that. Once that's then established and saying, well, here's my worldview, and there's a healthy disagreement that can take place, and again, this is a big if, especially today, then you can basically compare notes and say, who do you think is going to gain the most from this? Because even if I grant hedonism, even if I grant this will feel good, Jesus is a greater pleasure than sex could ever provide, even in my most preferred apparatus in practicing it. But if, on the other hand, I take another step and say, in the Christian worldview, whether I think it's good or bad, I want to be more like Jesus, that's my point. And unless they know Jesus, that should be our goal first. So if someone, your friend witnessing for Jesus, is asking you, what is wrong with it? We would say, same thing that's wrong with anything else. It's not Jesus. It'd be the same if you were in a heterosexual relationship but weren't faithful because that doesn't reflect the nature of God either. It would be the same thing if you were a heterosexual and were practicing it through pornography or fornication, meaning outside of marriage. That is not the nature of God. When we, and again this is more of a pop culture caricature than actual reality, make homosexuality the sin that dare not speak its name, we're misrepresenting the gospel. All sin falls falls short of the glory of God. But if, on the other hand, we take people aside and say, now, your issue isn't with the practice. Your issue is with what's good and what's bad. Can I share with you my reasons for wanting to do this as opposed to that? And ultimately, the reason as to why God does or doesn't do something comes to focus. I want to be more like him because he always gets things right. And if he defined my sexuality in a certain way, despite my rebellious nature, I want to be more like him. Peter, I know you deal with this a lot in our purity group as well. Um, any more insights or uh, other points you'd want to make in this matter?
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, when it comes to how to practice something correctly, the preceding question should always be well, what is its purpose? Right? So if you hand me an object and you say, use this correctly, I have to ask you, well, what is it for? Right? Because what it's for, what its intended purpose is, will dictate what the correct usage is. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is sex for? What's its purpose? What's its intent? If you don't know what the intent is, then there's no way to practice it correctly. So if someone comes and says, well, I, uh, I wanna practice my sexuality this way, I wanna practice my sexuality that way, the obvious preceding question is, well, what is sex for? So for a while in uh, church history, the idea that was that sex was for procreation. So this is why there was um, not just this reason, obviously they're pulling it from the Bible, but this is why they believe that God forbade homosexual relationships. Uh, This obviously led to some interesting counter arguments where people said, well, okay, well, there are some heterosexual couples that can't have children. There are some couples that choose not to have children. Uh, There are couples who are older that can't have children anymore. Has sex now uh, completely given up its purpose to couples that can't have sex at all? So that was just a very bad reasoning. What we see, and uh, I'm not going to go to these passages right now, but read them on your own time. What we see in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is Paul makes the argument that the purpose of sex was a very particular glorification of God that would honor him in his complementarian nature. So God is not just one being and one person. God is a trinity. He's a triune being that is unified to himself in perfect harmony but within that unification, there's differences between. So there's a difference between the father and the son. They are not the same person, but they are both God. This complement uh, complementary nature is very hard and difficult for us to understand and grasp. So what God did is he created two different sexes, male and female, that represent a portion of God's character. So it's not that men are totally different than women, it's that we represent different aspects of God and we glorify that in our given roles. Now, those roles also fall into the bedroom, right? So there is a a way and a means in which a man and a woman can appropriately glorify God in their sexual practices. Now, if you remove that, if you say, like, well, the intent of sex is not to glorify God, the intent of sex is not to show his nature, the intent of sex is just, I want to feel good. Well, then there is, again, there's there's no wrong way to feel sex as long as it's consensual and it feels good. Uh, And that seems to be our sexual ethics nowadays. Uh, It's consent, it has to be consensual, and it has to be something that is pleasurable. Well, Unless you're in a position of power. Yeah, and so for us Christians, we would just disagree with that. We would say, well, no, we we believe that sex is a very important purpose, and it's to glorify God, and the way that he created it and designed it was through the differences between men and women to be shown, to be utilized, uh, our biological differences to be utilized in a way that produces new life. Does that mean it always produces new life? No, but it should in theory, ideally, if we were in a fallen world, have the potential to create new life. So when you take male and male, you are now engaging in sexual practices that do not have the capacity to glorify that unique complementary nature of God. You're having one of the same sex engaging in sexual activity with itself as opposed to allowing both differences to be exemplified through the behavior, right? That was the intent that God had. Same with two females. So that's why God made it the way that he did. Now it is very possible, like like Sean said, there's there's gradations of good versus bad. There are better ways to honor God's nature and there are worse ways. Uh, So obviously, yes, someone who is in, let's say, polyamorous relationships, someone who is having multiple, multiple sexual partners is less glorifying to God than someone who has a single monogamous, committed relationship with a member of their same sex. Obviously that's better than the person who's having sex, which is multiple, multiple partners, and being very selfish and hedonistic in their behavior. However, it's not as good, because remember, goodness is that which could be brought to perfection, It's not as good as the person who is again glorifying God in the complementary means of gender, right? That's the ideal. And that's what we should be aspiring towards. That's what we should be, should be shooting for. Now, if you don't have a desire for that kind of a relationship and you don't know how to appropriately pursue it because we are in a fallen world and many of our desires go against God's perfect design, if you don't have a desire for it, if you don't uh, want to accomplish your sexual purpose in that way, well, you don't have to engage in it. There is a means of abstinence. And and again, it's it's very it's not a great thing. I don't think that that's the ideal. I don't think abstinence is the ideal that God set out for man, but it is something that someone can choose in order to glorify God in their sexuality. And many people have. People who don't have homosexual desires have chosen celibacy for for a very unique way of honoring God, Uh, the Apostle Paul being one, also the Prophet Jeremiah uh, being another. So there are people who do choose that, and Jesus does praise those people in Matthew chapter 19, t- talking about people who are who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. He's not saying that they're castrating themselves, but he's saying that they are choosing a life of celibacy in order to honor the kingdom of heaven, and that's to be glorified and it's to be honored. But that's, uh, that's the main point we have to argue from as Christians, is what is the purpose and design of sex? Unless we know that, then there's no reason discussing what the proper practice is.
0: Very good. Do you have, I'm just, I'm curious. I know you're, um, you mentioned Sean, the the purity group you have on Tuesday evenings tonight, right? It's Tuesday today, yeah. Yeah. Which is mostly oh, it was for men. Your group and mostly men who are struggling with pornography. But do you have okay, have you I had men so. not to have any details, but men that struggle with the sexual, sexuality in that way, who are who are trying to you know restrain from homosexual desires and that kind of thing as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wow. I think
2: think it's very difficult in the Christian church for men to admit this, uh, especially, because I think it's it's already difficult to admit that you struggle sexually, that you have failures in your sexual ethics and your sexual behavior, uh, that you've had uh, maybe multiple sexual partners, you view pornography, you've had extramarital affairs. Things like that are very humbling to admit, right? It's very humbling for me to admit that I have an issue and a struggle against uh, viewing pornographic content. But that is a part of the struggle that I have to honor God in my sexuality. So I have it. I can't do anything about that, right? You don't have a choice about what you struggle with, but you do have a choice about what you do with it. And so I have chosen, instead of indulging in what I would want to do, I have chosen to fight against it. Uh, I don't do that perfectly, but I have chosen to do, to utilize all the resources that God has given me within the church to do my best to fight it so that I might glorify God in my sexual behavior. But I I think that there's an especially large taboo against same-sex attraction. So I I have seen a lot of guys, even if they'll confess it to me one-on-one, they might have struggles confessing it to other men in the confines of the group. Um, So I I don't know if I've ever had anyone in the group that exclusively struggles with same-sex attraction Usually it's what I guess our culture would call more bisexuality, where mm. they they have sexual desires for both men and women. Mm. And uh, they're trying to, again, confine those desires to just women and hopefully just one, one woman, minute. right? <laughs> uh, right. But, but yeah, absolutely, we do.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you for sharing all that, guys. Thank you for that question as well. I uh, have a question from another Peter here. Uh, why is death cast into hell? Is this symbolic? Thanks. Do you guys understand that? Yeah, it's a reference to Revelation 20, uh, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And it
1: explains early in the chapter, the lake of fire is the second death. So death dies. The question is, is death like that? (laughs) Really Concepts and stuff. Um, Obviously, when it comes to interpreting anything anywhere, the Bible included, we should start with this very simple rule. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. And to not trip over your brain cells on that one if it sounds silly it's because it is that's pretty much how we start so is death an entity well we don't see that anywhere else in the bible we see that death is consistently pictured and described as a concept meaning separation physical death meaning separation from your body and your consciousness your spirit or soul as it's sometimes called and the second death is spiritual separation from god and of course uh, in a resurrected state that'll live forever but not uh In a way, in a place you want. So the question is, is it absurd for us to take this literally, that death and the realm of the dead were like picked up and put into Gehenna, the outer darkness, the lake of fire, etc.? And that would obviously be silly. If on the other hand, a concept is put in the state we call hell, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? that the status of separation, how Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 15, the consequences of sin, Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, the consequences of sin will be separated from God and will be with God. So do the math. If we're plus God and death is minus from God, then the two shall not meet. That's, I think, the most consistent handling of the text, Peter, and uh, hopefully I won't get called a heretic for it. But um, again, if something's symbolic, obviously try to take it literally at first blush, but if it doesn't make sense, then the best thing to do is to find other uses for it in Scripture and apply it consistently until it does make sense. Now note, there are things that don't make sense to us, but that are applied literally. We need a little bit of a cultural insight and commentaries and maybe asking on the program. We study these things regularly. We can give an insight to that. But in Revelation 20, yes, I think the most consistent handling of the text isn't that death is an entity that will be cast into hell. It's a concept that will no
0: longer apply to those with eternal fellowship with God forever. Mm. Very good. Anything to add to that? No. How could you? How could you possibly?
2: How could I improve on
0: connection? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Pizza, thank you for that that great question. And a reminder, please send your questions in on the the chat function of whatever platform you're joining us on or to our email address, questionsforhope@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I am monitoring those as we go along. We have a, a two part, well, not two parts, but two questions from Lisa. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Uh, first question is Is there any significance with the father's right hand rather than his left hand? Is he just a righty? <laughs> uh, yeah. How,
1: how deep do you want to go into this? Deep. <laughs> okay. Um, in the the left hand so in Middle Eastern culture was toilet paper. So if you had any gesture or association with the left hand, it was always seen as an insult. We usually limit it to one finger. Interestingly enough, because of your culture, Dave, you couldn't properly string a longbow without a middle finger. So if you were to give someone the middle finger, that would be a sign that you were ready to fight someone. It's mm. considered a challenge. In France, it's uh, two fingers for the same reason. In China, Noting that a uh, symbol and so forth. Sorry for our Chinese viewers, but you get the point. They're viewing us in China. God bless you. But anyway, um, yeah, left hand in Middle Eastern culture would have been seen as an insult. At the right hand means a position of favor, especially in the sense of a king.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's on fire. Uh, Lisa's second question is uh, also. When Jesus asked the demon, what is your name? What is the significance of this? And why is it a one-time event? He asked, what is your name or or title? Legion is a title. Legion is a title. Uh, The demon answered, Legion, why did he do this this way? And thank you. That's a really good question. Because
2: In modern day kind of spiritualism, a lot of people believe that the way that we call out demons is by finding out what their name is. Mm. Uh, now, there, as, I, I like how you asked the question, because what it shows is that you don't buy into that. Okay. Uh, you, you do notice that this is a one-time thing. It's the only time in Scripture that someone performing an exorcism asks for the name of the prospective demon that they're casting out, and it's a unique situation in that it is Jesus doing it. Uh, you'll notice that the way that Jesus casts out demons is very different than the way that, say, the apostles cast out demons in the book of Acts. Uh, the reason why is because Jesus has authority in himself the christian only has authority in the name of jesus so we Mm. can't dialogue with demons in the way that jesus did because jesus is kind of god and he has the authority the right and the power to do that if you'll notice whenever he interacts with a demon especially in this instance there's palpable fear within the demonic entity present within the person they know exactly who jesus is and they are terrified of what he's going to do to them because they know that he has the power to throw them into the abyss or the pit Now, what this is, is, uh, you know, I'm not going to get too far into it, but the majority of demons are actually just on the earth right now roaming around. Uh, they, They can't affect us as Christians in the sense that they can't possess us because we have the Holy Spirit within us, but they have the ability, it says that Satan roams about like a roaring lion. They have the ability to tempt and to dissuade people from following after God because they are creatures essentially of pure consciousness, right? They have no physical form. But what they can do in certain circumstances that they could actually what we call possess people now a possessed person is, is someone who has essentially had their autonomy stolen from them or by relinquished. One of these, or relinquished uh, by one of these demonic entities right and uh, like we've talked about, being filled with a demon is a lot like getting filled with a spirit in a very demonic sense in that nobody's accidentally getting filled with a demon, right? Mm-hmm. It just, it's not like you're walking through your house and a Ouija board falls out of your closet and then oh, a demon hits you. Dang, or, it has, bro. Yeah, you 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 put on some uh, Metallica and all of a sudden it gets you or something like that. It, it, it's a very Thank intentional. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> or else I'd be, I'd be <laughs> done. Yeah. Uh, it's a very intentional action and that's what happens. But The majority of demons as i said they're on this earth they have their own kind of abilities on this plane of existence but there are certain demons that are not on this earth they are in uh, a place called the pit or the abyss take your pick and it's a holding cell for the specifically for the demonic uh now there's going to be a time in revelation 9 where these demons are going to be let out which is pretty terrifying imagery if you want to read it on your own time But that's what the demons were afraid of. They knew that Jesus had authority over them. They knew he could do that. Because of that, you see Jesus uniquely interacting with the demon. I believe it was an attempt to show his disciples a little peek behind the curtain, exactly what was happening behind demonic power, and to show them the kind of power that he exercised over demonic entities. Because they not only saw him talk to this demon, but get this demon to tell him that we're legion for we're many, but see Jesus with a whim, send them into pigs and have them drown themselves in an ocean. That's pretty impressive stuff, right? So Jesus is intentionally doing this to demonstrate his power, Mm. to show the disciples a peek behind the curtain. That's one way to interpret this particular account. But again, I think you do very well to notice that this is the only time this is done. Mm. So it is important for us to figure out like why is it the only, uh, it's only done this way one time. This is clearly not a prescription for how to cast out demons, but to teach us a lesson
0: about something. Very good. Great questions, Lisa. Thank you so much for, for them. Uh, again, send us your questions on, your, on the chat function, and uh, we still have some time left on the show to endeavor to answer them. We have a question here on a, on a, a card that uh, if, you, if you're here in attendance at Calvary Christian Fellowship, you can write your question down on the card, put it in the Guppy boxes, and these, those get to us as well. This is a great question. Uh, very apt for this this time we're living in. Are mental disorders spiritual? Are mental mm. disorders spiritual? So much mental health problems these days, it seems like, to me anyway, more than ever. People struggling with mental health, depression, anxiety, the like. Is this a spiritual problem, or is it a medical, physical problem? I'll let you take
2: the spiritual. If uh, I'll if I I just fill in kind of my views as to why I believe mental health is on the
1: rise. Yeah. Mm. Um, First of all, when we're talking to people with mental disorders, to associate it with the spiritual is incredibly depressing and unhelpful. Let's first lay that out, because usually when they say spiritual, does that mean the only way you have a mental disorder is if you're demonically possessed? Now, to the credit, and I say this very reservedly, of people who make this diagnosis the reason they say that is because like epilepsy which is a legitimate mental disorder uh, sometimes exhibits symptoms that also demonically possessed individuals have shown therefore they say common symptom common cause anyone who's taken biology 101 and even knows how to spell germ, knows that that's not how that works. If you have a common symptom, it doesn't necessarily mean common cause. It means that there's something going on. You need to get to the bottom of it. Now, when we're talking about examples of this, obviously there are instances in the gospel accounts where Jesus interacts with a kid who went into fits and seizures and tries to kill himself just on a whim, and we see this as a suicidal tendency among people with mental disorders as well, but that can also be listed for other factors, which we'll get into in a moment. When it comes to the fine line, and I think this is the best place to put it for my own sense of uh, reservedness, is if you want to know the difference between a demonically possessed individual and someone who has a mental disorder, deal with the demonic first, biblically, and if it doesn't work, then you've eliminated one of the two options. If the name of Jesus is about as meaningful as the name of Tom to them, then it is entirely biological. If, on the other hand, someone looks like they've just been hit in the face with a brick, then understand that your authority in the name of Jesus is ethical in that situation. But when we're talking about a and we can maybe talk about this on rhetoric, the poor, poor logic that's employed in saying that, well, people who were demon-possessed in one or two situations had seizures, this person's having seizures, ergo, this person is demonically possessed. That's not only horrifically unhelpful to the individual, but it's unbiblical as well. I'm not sure which one is worse, but you can probably guess my opinion to the latter. As far as the biological factors, though, Peter when it comes to the concern people have a lot with mental health these days is it because there's an uptick in spiritual activity or is it because of potentially other things that we're just either neglecting or pursuing
2: yeah i'll just give you 3 uh, i could actually go on for quite a while on this but there's there's when we say the topic of mental health what we're referring to is we're referring to the idea that there is an ideal of mental health, there's there's a way that your mind ought to function. Uh, it's kind of like bodily health. Is anyone perfectly healthy on this planet? Well, no. But we do have an idea of again, kind of like going back to our sex question. We know what each appendage is supposed to do, and therefore we know ideally what its function would look like. So therefore, it's very easy for us to determine when something has gone wrong. When there's an unhealthy portion of the Bible, uh, the body. Sorry. Now, when it comes to the mind, there's a lot of difficulty in diagnosing what would be considered unhealthy. The reason why is because the mind, by definition, it's the intersection between the flesh and the spirit, right? The mind is something that we can't actually quantify or look at. We can look at the brain, but we know that consciousness doesn't derive directly from the brain. There's some other factor that's at play that neuroscientists can't really figure out, but we as Christians, we know what it is, right? We know that, that you have a spiritual component to you, that your consciousness is not just a conglomeration of neurons firing in your brain, that you actually have a consciousness that it is real, that your sense of self and being are correct and they are created by God. But we also acknowledge that because the mind is the intersection point between the flesh and the spirit, we acknowledge that the brain has impact on the spirit. So while the way you think, right? Paul says in Romans 12, that we can renew our mind and therefore be transformed, we do believe that the way you think can have efficacy in the way that you behave and in even the way that your brain functions, there are crazy studies on that, but there are limitations to it because there is a such thing as an unhealthy brain. There, is, there are unhealthy thoughts and there's an unhealthy brain structure and brain chemistry. Now, a lot of the brain chemistry is, again, it's its not as a solid science as people try to make it out to be. It's very tentative. We don't actually understand fully what the chemistry of the brain ought to look like and how to meddle with it to get it at optimal levels. Uh, we've made attempts. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. And we also don't know exactly how effective the mind is, meaning that how much would it affect someone just to think differently? Would it totally override these particular problems or difficulty. But let's just, right, uh, and placebo effect is a huge study. And me and Sean Mm -hmm. talked about, I think a couple months ago, Mm -hmm. where they did a study on antidepressants and they proved that placebos were just as effective as antidepressants Mm. in helping people with uh, their depression issues. So uh, it's not an exact science. Anyone who treats it as an exact science is lying to you. They're oversimplifying the problem. It's not an exact science. There are things that we can know and there are things that we're guessing at. There are theories of how the mind works. And it is also important to understand that the people who created psychoanalysis, guys like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, they actually did not consider what they were doing to be a science. They, and and by the way, the way they defined it is they say, a science is anything that is disprovable. Uh, what they said is because mental science is not actually disprovable, it can't be a science. It's something that can be studied, it's something that we can improve our understanding of, but it's not an exact science. It's not like medical science. It's not like mechanical science in that way. So a big problem, the reason why I give you all that kind of background is one big problem with why mental health seems to be on the rise is because people seem to believe that a healthy mind will always function at optimal levels. Now that's not accurate. Let's take the elbow, for instance. So is it healthy for the elbow to be broken? Well, no. Is it healthy for an elbow to be broken if a car is dropped upon it? And the answer is Mm. yes, your Mm. bone is not supposed to take that kind of pressure. If it does, I would actually have to either assume you're a superhero or something is wrong. There's something maladaptive about your bone structure for it not to break under that type of pressure. This is good science, right? Right? (laughs) Same with the mind. If somebody undergoes great amounts of stress or trauma, and they're not affected by it, I wouldn't conclude that they're healthy. I would actually mm. conclude you're unhealthy. Mm. There's something wrong with your mind that it's not being affected at all. Now, the ways that it could be affected are different depending on the individual, but some sort of an effect should show up unless there's something abnormal about the mind. The problem is, is a lot of people have diagnosed normal functions of the mind underneath abnormal stressors right? So someone who undergoes great grief, let's say they lose a loved one and they start experiencing depression. Well, that's not unhealthy actually. That's very healthy. You're supposed to grieve over loved ones. But I have spoken to at least one individual who was diagnosed with depression and given medication, antidepressants after his sister committed suicide, right? Now that's that's bunk. That's Mm -hmm. terrible. You're not supposed to do that, right? Mm -hmm. He needs to grieve because that is a healthy function of the mind. Mm. So I think a lot of people today believe that any type of stressor, something wrong has occurred and therefore they need some sort of a pill or therapy to get over it. And the answer is, well, maybe not. Maybe your mind is actually doing a very healthy thing and you need to let it do what it needs to do. Mm. Uh, Just like if you break a bone, you need to allow your bone to mend. Uh, you need to allow these things to occur. Now, another big reason, I'll give you a second one, another big reason why uh, mental health is on the decline, this is kind of a two-part one, Uh, mental health is on the decline, especially in the West, is because the thing that people need more than anything to function is actually meaning and purpose. Uh, I would encourage people to read a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning, in which uh, Viktor Frankl, being a Holocaust survivor, talks about that being the fundamental Uh, driving factor of a human being is our search for meaning, our purpose. Now, if you tell people, um, and this is gonna get a little abstract, so try to stay with me here. Essentially, the way that you and I derive meaning and purpose is through obligations, things that we ought to do, things that we need to do. So there are many things in my life that I can do, but I don't derive purpose from them. Mm. I can go drive right now. I don't have to. I I shouldn't. It's not like there's an ought. There's not a moral ought on me doing that. It's just something I can do. Mm. Therefore, none of my meaning or purpose is derived from that. However, I do have to work for a living, and therefore I'm going to derive purpose and meaning from that. Mm. I ought to be a good father to my daughter. I could derive meaning and purpose from that. And I also have divine obligations, means things that God wants me to do. All these things help me derive meaning and purpose. We live in a culture that believe that all injunctions on you are actually incarcerations, meaning that if someone tells you you ought to do this, you have to do this, they have actually put some sort of an injunction on you and done something unfair and unrighteous, that the way to be happy is to be totally liberated from all obligations and worry. The problem is is that you need obligations in order to have purpose. So if you free someone, quote unquote, from all obligations, you've also freed them from all of their purpose. So there are many people today that just don't have any meaning in life. They don't know what they ought to do. They thought that kind of giving themselves total and complete liberty would make them happy, but it's actually made them very unhappy. Take, for instance, the sexual uh, revolution, the sexual liberation, as people have called it. Has it made our country happier sexually or unhappier sexually? The data's in. We know exactly how it's impacted people. Women are massively more unhappy than they were before the proliferation of the sexual revolution. Men are mildly less happy than they were, but they are still very much uh, unhappy comparatively to what they were in the 50s, for instance. Mm. So when you free people up, quote unquote, from all obligations, you haven't done them a favor. Now, if you put people under false obligations, you also have done something damaging, but ironically, less damaging than freeing them up from all obligation altogether. Uh, So Viktor Frankl talks about this, that, Actually, the Nazis producing bad obligations for the Jews, meaning making them work, even to the point of physical exhaustion and death, although it was psychologically damaging, it was at least giving them some semblance of purpose. Mm. To, give, to take away all purpose from someone and just have them rot away in a cell, for instance, is actually to, to completely unravel someone's psyche. Mm. Right? And people can't live like that for very often. So think about the reason why I said it's a two-parter where do we derive these obligations from? Relationships. You derive them from your relationship primarily with God and then your relationship with your neighbor and your family members and people like that. That's where you derive these types of obligations. Because people are atomized, they don't have these relationships, and therefore their mental health isn't very good because they have no meaning and no purpose, uh, which leads into the third and final one. I'll try to wrap this up, one up quickly. Okay, you go. got three minutes, two and a half <laughs> The main way that people actually are able to deal with psychological struggle, now this is setting aside extreme psychologi- uh, psychological disorders, which by the way, even this is true for those, things like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, bipolar, uh, which is actually called manic depressive now. No, I'm sorry, flip that, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's called bipolar now. It was yeah. called manic depressive. right? Even these more extreme mental disorders, uh, the best way to work through them is through communication this is again why sigmund freud and why carl Jung were so revolutionary and why they did such a good job the main thing they were able to do was just sit with people with massive psychological disorders and talk to them most people ignored them and treated them like they were lepers they didn't talk to them they just locked them up they kept them in padded cells nobody tried to interact with them what these guys did is they actually sat down with these people and they tried to understand them once they started making mental and psychological connections with these people it helped them get back to a more normal state of being. Did they ever become totally normal? No, they had these disorders, but they actually were able to bring them to some semblance of normalcy through human interaction. Mm. The number one way to drive someone crazy is to totally isolate them, Mm. right? If you put somebody on an island by themselves, they will lose their mind. You need to bounce your consciousness off of other people in order to understand what is real. We're kind of like bats and sonar, right? That's what we need. When you atomize people, and you subjugate them to only having major social interactions online, that's not enough of an interaction and a connection to bring about mental health. You need more than that. Mm. You need actual real life encounters that help you interact and figure yourself out. You need people that can press against you, people that you can't mute, people that you can't just cancel out of your social media presence, people that are gonna be with you for the long haul. That is what produces mental health and we're losing it at a great level in
0: the West. Thank you so much. While we come to the end of our time, Sean, thank you so much. Peter, thank you. We touched on quite a few uh, heavy things. I wanted to mention that we do have resources and even support groups here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We mentioned the sexual purity and your books as well on on, uh, trauma and such uh, that we've been speaking about. So do reach out if something has touched a nerve. You're not alone in it, uh, we'd love to help to uh, help you walk through that and resource you, thank you so much, we'll see you again tomorrow, same time, same place, God bless you.
1: You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry, at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.